Hey there, podcast listeners. It's our eighth episode out of 10, the 10-part series I'm calling Season 1 of Hi-Fi Nation. And I'm going to need another couple of weeks to produce the last two. And they're going to be very good, I promise you. One's going to be about love. The other's going to be about truth. And the last one's going to feature the story of an Oscar award-winning filmmaker who's actually going to be on the show. If you haven't already, subscribe on your podcatcher or to the blog at hifination.org to stay updated. In the meantime, I'd like to do a season two. So if you like the show and want to see it continue, keep sharing it on social media, on blogs, on Reddit, or any corner of the internet you think will help recruit people to the show. Thanks for listening. Here's episode eight. The views expressed on this episode of Hi-Fi Nation, including by current and former members of the U.S. military, are those of the subjects alone and do not reflect the position of the United States Military Academy, the Department of the Army, or the Department of Defense. Last year, the 2016 class at West Point got some surprising news halfway through their senior year. Ashton Carter the previous Secretary of Defense under President Obama, opened up the combat arms, infantry, armor, and field artillery to all genders. The women of West Point, part of the leadership class of the Army, suddenly had options open to them they didn't think they had, even though combat arms was always part of their training. 2016 was looking like an important year of progress for women, and all of West Point's women had important decisions to make. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Zoe Kreitenberg. I graduated from West Point in May 2016. I'm an Air Defense Artillery Officer. We had a three-star general come in and speak to the class about his principles of leadership. He had all thousand of us print out a handout with like his main speaking points. Number one on the sheet, nothing else had to be read before reading this. Number one, be a man. And actually at the bottom of the page in like a footnote, I don't mean be a man in a gendered way. I mean it as, like, be responsible or be an adult. Well, the fact that you, like, pointed out that there's a problem with that phrase indicates that there's probably a problem with that phrase. Zoe tried her best to conceal her displeasure. But that military skill was still a work in progress. He asked me directly, what did you think of my talk? I told him that I understand his point, about being a responsible adult. And I think that like, perhaps that would be better received if that's what he said, but that that's not what he said. And that you can't throw a footnote on the phrase, be a man and say that it's not gendered because be a man is inherently gendered. Zoe was with a female classmate at the time who asked the general during the talk about that very issue. His response was the army is a male dominated organization. It always has been. It always will be. It's the laws of physics. And the laws of physics was a direct quote. I distinctly remember that. (laughs) That's one perspective on why there aren't more women in army leadership, 
It's a law of nature. There's another possibility. West Point artificially kept their admissions of women at 15% for many years. If they did gender-blind admissions, I think that it'd probably be more like 70% women. Lieutenant Colonel Naomi Mercer was an English professor at West Point. She's now at the Pentagon, overseeing the integration of women into the combat arms. Colonel Mercer taught at West Point many years ago, then spent years on various other assignments, including a deployment to Iraq, before getting a Ph.D. at the University of Wisconsin and returning to West Point to teach for another three years. I had to fly to Baghdad twice to take the GRE subject exam in literature and then the general exam. Oh, one time we got shot at. <laughs> During so, while you were taking the GRE? No, well, I was okay. in the helicopter on the way to Baghdad. So I was like the badass graduate student <laughs> in my program at University of Wisconsin because I'd been shot at on the way to the GREs. In the cadets' minds, I'm the feminist. Scare quotes around that. The feminist. I've told my classes that the average male cadet is less qualified to be here than the average female cadet. And so the ones that are kind of average are kind of like, you mean I wouldn't be here if admissions were gender blind? And I'm like, yeah. Because the women who apply here are really good. The women who apply to West Point want the challenge. They want something different. Really? Is it possible that if the military academies were a true meritocracy, that we would be getting close to 70% women officers? What about the larger army in general? Could it be that there are a lot more women warriors out there who are better than a lot of male warriors and they're kept down? Or is it the laws of physics? You should take Colonel Mercer's numbers with a grain of salt. Admissions at any college, let alone an elite military academy, are black boxes. All kinds of things are taken into consideration besides academic achievement. But here's what's definitely true. Military service has been, traditionally, in just about every culture, considered to be for men and not women. So it wouldn't be surprising for gatekeepers at the premier military institutions of this country to think that men make better soldiers and military leaders, while at the same time recognizing that coming out of high school, women show higher achievement at all levels. Maybe there's something unfair about the fact that there aren't more women in the army. But there's another way to look at it. Maybe preventing more women from fighting is a way of keeping men down. Why should men be the sole bearers of the burden to engage in violent conflict on behalf of their country? You're listening to High Fi Nation, a philosophy podcast that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. Today's show is about being a man and about being a woman. How do war and violence play a role in determining what it means to be a man and a woman? We're going to hear from soldiers and philosophers alike about the role of gender in war and the role of war in gender. Joshua Goldstein. I'm an emeritus professor of international relations at the American University in Washington, D.C. Joshua Goldstein wrote a book called War and Gender, which was considered book of the decade in international relations for the decade 2000 to 2010. The central question of the book is why war is divided so neatly and absolutely 
along gender lines across all cultures. The first explanation people usually reach for is biology. Men are naturally bigger, stronger, and more violent than women. But this explanation has its limits. For one, it cites a statistical fact, not an absolute one. The puzzle here isn't why most warfighters would be men. If you want the best army, it's going to be more men than women. And the puzzle is, if you take the strongest, fastest, most aggressive women, they'll be way stronger, faster, more aggressive than the bottom end of the men's curve. Why don't you use the top end of that women's bell curve, the fastest, strongest women, and instead draw deep into the bad end, if you will, of the men's curve and exclude women? Lieutenant Zoe Kreitenberg. My whole cadet career from freshman year to the end of junior year, I didn't see myself as embodying what the Army saw as a personality to go combat arms. I didn't see myself as like the drink monster, chew tobacco, and drive an F-150. Introducing the all-new Ford F-150. The first and only pickup with a high-strength military... Summer into first year, senior year. I did CLDT, which is the hardest field training that West Point offers. And I, like, really got into it. I remember on our first ruck march, someone chose me to be the point person, the person who leads the ruck march and does land nav. And we were carrying all of our stuff for eight days. But I guess that I was going kind of fast and didn't realize it. So then the first sergeant who was with us, he came up to where I was at and called a halt so he could come let the people who were struggling take a break. There were a few guys who were like clearly not pleased to find out that they couldn't keep up with a girl. Ultimately, that experience was important for me because it helped me appreciate that I can do it and that I was better at it than a lot of the people who I had previously envisioned doing that. Now we have a fuller picture of Zoe's encounter with the general. We have a young cadet who discovered she's a good leader in infantry training. It's the very first year women are allowed to opt into infantry, and she's having a conversation with someone at the top telling everyone that you need to be a man to be a military leader. And actually at the bottom of the page, in like a footnote, I don't mean be a man in a gendered way. I mean it as like be responsible or be an adult. I actually don't think be a man means anything like be a responsible adult. So I'm with Zoe on this one. True, be a man can be used to tell a male a lot of different things in different contexts. But be a man definitely means something gendered. It means be the traits that we associate with manhood. But I'm surprised that the general didn't just concede that point. Why didn't he just admit that it meant something gendered, and that it was important for him to say something gendered? At least he could have had a conversation about whether military leadership was gendered, rather than argue about whether that phrase could be used in an ungendered way. This general's attitude, that being a military leader requires being a man, it's not like he's alone in thinking this. What the pattern of history shows across the board is that it's really hard to get men to fight. It's not a natural thing. So just look at the pervasiveness of conscription through history. 
You have to draft men into the army. And then when it actually comes time to fight, a lot of armies have used either drugs the rum ration in the British Army, a lot of these militias in Africa and recent civil wars giving various combinations of drugs, amphetamines. And then after the fact, people are very traumatized by it. Society's cultures have to work at men from childhood. One of the strong motivations that a lot of cultures have found effective is this appeal to gender that you're not a real man unless you can fight in a war. And so we raise boys to be tough, to not cry, and to suppress their feelings, except for anger. Anger's okay, but sadness and stuff, not supposed to feel it, not supposed to show it. Man up, tough it out, soldier on, and after year after year after that, then they're ready to put into the military and they'll be able to do these unnatural, horrible things and follow their orders. We could do that with women as well, but it would undermine the appeal to men that they're proving their manhood. When women have gone in the military, sometimes the men say, hey, if a woman can do this job, then what's that make me? I thought I was proving what a man I was. Goldstein became interested in the provocative idea that the need to prepare men for the violence of war is where our ideas of manhood come from. This idea runs counter to the view that men are in some ways biologically or naturally violent, and aggressive, and that they are the source or cause of war. Instead, Goldstein likes the view that a culture perceives a need for its members to engage in violent force on its behalf, and it fulfills this need by establishing for its members that the traits that make a good man are the very ones that make a good soldier. My name is Tom Digby. I am Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts. The book is titled Love and War, How Militarism Shapes Sexuality and Romance. In Digby's book, he finds three important norms of manhood that he thinks follow directly from the norms for being a good warrior. The number one requirement, actually, of a warrior is to be able to manage the capacity to care about the suffering of others and of himself. You care deeply about the people you're fighting with, but, but you don't care at all about the suffering of the people you're fighting against. Selective empathy. You have controlled and marked empathetic care for those in your community, under your protection, and none at all for those outside of it. The second Digby calls a faith in masculine force. I, you know, I describe it sometimes more broadly as just a faith in force. It's, for example, when a man is expected to be able to unscrew the lid from a pickle jar. There's this assumption that men are, are strong and forceful and able to do forceful things. The idea is that a real man, a good man, the norms for a man, include the capacity to solve problems using physical force. But this faith in force also means that the society itself seeks out masculine force to be the solution to its problems. The counterpart to the norms for masculinity that derive from the warrior are the complementary norms for femininity. The woman's going to represent the normalcy of society. While the men are fighting wars, the women will be maintaining civilization, the kind of things that the men can feel like I'm fighting for my girl back home and the whole way of life that she represents. So that's sort of how it's been structured as a way to motivate the men. 
If Goldstein and Digby are right, and part of the very standards for being a good man are the traits for being a good soldier, and built into the norms for being a woman are only complementary or supportive traits, then the disadvantages that women face in trying to be soldiers are going to be deeper than just physical ones. My name is Veronica Bryant, or in the Army, I guess, second lieutenant Veronica Bryant. Veronica Bryant was also class of 2016 at West Point. We have a commandant, and the nickname for the commandant is Com. The nickname for the superintendent is Soup. Well, we just recently appointed our first female commandant, and everyone calls her the Mamadant, or Mom. And they follow it with mom jokes. When she does something strict, which is the commandant's place to enforce rules on the Corps of Cadets, you know, she's automatically a bitch. It's as if people forgot she's a one-star general. What I do see in the gendered language, and this is across the Army, is the use of the word females. The use of it as a noun, especially in a military setting, is particularly derogatory. When I was in a basic training company as the XO, all the drill sergeants, they'd be like, hey, female, when they'd be calling it a soldier. And I was like, you got to stop doing that. And they're like, why? You know, that's how we distinguish them from others. And I'm like, you say, hey, black, when there's a black and a white guy standing there? And since half of those drill sergeants were black, they immediately got it. I'm very, very conscientious of being a woman now. I really struggled with my staff and sort of giving instructions and making sure things are getting done. And we were having this meeting with our OIC or officer in charge, and he finally looked at one of them and said, do you think you have problems taking direction from Veronica because she's a black woman who's small? I'm only five feet tall. And two of them just point blank without even thinking. We're like, yeah, probably. These kinds of stories are very common when you hear from women going through military training, and they make a lot more sense to me now. To be a man is to be a good warrior, and to be a man is to not be a woman. So it's going to be really hard for women soldiers to be seen as soldiers, rather than as the very thing that defines them in opposition to soldiers. Women, procreators, moms, little sisters, And this is even true in the context when you're training the woman to be a soldier, or even when the woman is your commanding officer. So I'm Graham Parsons. I'm assistant professor in the Department of English and Philosophy at West Point. Masculinity is so salient in the culture, in the mannerisms that are seen as good, what makes you seem like a leader, seem like an officer. It's undeniable that gender is playing a part in that. I don't think including women undermines the masculine character of the office. If you look at a lot of the accounts of women who have served and served well, they've done well, they've really flourished in the military, they often describe their experience as becoming one of the guys in a really deep sense. So they describe changing how they carry themselves, how they talk, how they walk and they adopt the accoutrement of manliness. That's really interesting. It confirms my view that masculinity is a big part of it. But it also shows that there's this added barrier to gender inclusion in the military. It's not just a matter of adding women. There's some deeper change that would need to occur to be completely gender integrated. There's a large 
population of women in the army that, for want of a better term, are very butch presenting. And I also think that the women who have a more masculine appearance have an easier time of it with some of the men. Lieutenant Veronica Bryant. Pretty or feminine is seen as a weakness. So women who wear makeup are many times, not always, but many times assumed to be lesser quality officers, less serious, less ambitious. They call it parade pretty. It's kind of what they say when a woman's wearing makeup, things like that. And that a woman who is very stern looking and serious and not wearing makeup and has shorter hair is obviously, you know, there for business. Boys who act girl-like or generally don't conform to the norms, and I'm talking about young boys here, they will just be squashed. They're called sissies, which is short for sister originally. They'll be taunted and teased, and their fathers will come down on them. By contrast, girls who become tomboys play with boys, dress like boys, enjoy those boy-like activities. Those tomboys will be pretty well accepted by both genders. And they come back to their girl friends and like, oh yeah, you're still cool. You're one of us. So why is that asymmetry the case? And I think it's pretty obvious that girls that go over to the tomboy side are no threat to the society's ability to fight a war if it needs to. On the contrary, they might get in there and help with it. But boys who allow themselves to fall off the path of toughness that's going to lead to being a soldier someday they are a threat because not only will they be unavailable to fight the war, but they could set a bad example for other boys. And then you're going to start to lose your soldiers. There's one more feature of masculinity that I haven't mentioned. It's such an important norm for a warrior that it's the only one of the traits that has more than just cultural pressures pushing boys in that direction. There's actually a Supreme Court ruling and an entire legal infrastructure built around imposing it. Soldiers don't exist in the same political and legal space as the rest of us. There's a Supreme Court decision from 1890 called the Grimley decision, and it says very clearly that to enlist in the armed forces is to change your status, your civil status. And uh, interestingly, it finds one other contract that is analogous, and that's the marriage contract, which turns a woman into a wife, and she loses any civil standing she may have had before and becomes obligated to be faithful to her husband. I can imagine all sorts of other institutions who would love to offer contracts like this to their people, right? Like Walmart would love to have contracts they give to their employees where they give away their basic civil liberties, and they're subject to a totally different legal codes, like Walmart law with Walmart cops and courts and stuff. And I bet you people would sign those contracts if there's income involved, but we wouldn't allow that contract. What we would object to is the very nature of that relationship. Something seems wrong about that kind of relationship. But in the military, we allow contracts like that. I think it's masculinity that, in large part, legitimates this unique contract, this military contract. We think men should be self-sacrificial protectors of the community. And we allow them to engage in contracts that make them such a thing. Another thing that's quite interesting is that this masculinity not only makes their personal interests subordinate to the interests of the community, but their liberty as well. They're not these free, independent beings that normally we associate with masculinity. 
And I think this is pretty interesting because my understanding of the literature on masculinity doesn't really highlight this feature of masculinity or that it doesn't even see this as a feature of masculinity, this subordination. Usually masculinity is associated with domination. So your masculinity can be affirmed by being subordinate to the commands of another. Here's how you give up your liberty as a soldier. No speaking against, criticizing, or openly protesting your commanders, president, or government. You have to run these opinions and who you will talk to about them through the army first. Have them clear it or forbid it. Do the job you're asked to do, not the one you want or are good at. Have the haircut and clothing you're asked to have. Most importantly for every soldier, the state, and not you, own your right to life and bodily integrity. The state determines whether you can come or go from a job, a residence, a country. Change the words in these rules as existing not between a government and its soldiers, but between husbands, fathers, brothers, men, and other women, and they look just like rules for strict patriarchies. The household has been separated from civil society, and women, as mothers, as wives, have not been given equal civil standing to men. Maybe the military can be seen as similar. It's kind of the masculine counterpart to the traditional household, a space where men as men have been separated from civil society and used for the community's ends. Number one, be a man. I'm sure the irony isn't lost on Lieutenant Kreitenberg. The traits for ideal manhood in militaristic cultures include the traits for ideal womanhood in patriarchal cultures. When the general said, be a man, part of the meaning of that is, be a woman. It's actually a written opinion of the Supreme Court. And the repercussions include many pernicious side effects for men as well as for women. But there is this kind of gendered oppression that men have endured, and it has a lot to do with violence. And you see this not just in the military, but men are much more likely to be the victims of violent crime than women. The pressure to engage in injurious sports. I am saying that men as men have been asked to do something quite burdensome. Tom Digby. The higher suicide level, the fact that men die at younger ages, one explanation that I've sometimes considered is that men simply don't take care of themselves as well. They don't take care of their health. They don't seek medical help, and they don't seek emotional help. Which brings us to the ultimate reason why men and women have been divided in war. If a lot of men get killed, you can still replenish the population. One man can produce lots of offspring, uh, but a woman can produce far fewer offspring. So men are more expendable, basically. Digby thinks internalizing this sense of your life and health, being expendable in the service of your community, is what helps explain the masculine norms of toughness and the side effects this has on men in civilian life. It seems to me that men are culturally programmed to sacrifice their health and their lives. Uh, the, the kind of emotional makeup that's needed for war is not something you can just turn on or off like a light switch. 
Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. I finally have a better understanding of what it is to be a man. For a couple generations now, feminists have been calling attention to how much norms of femininity have been tied to women sacrificing their self-interests and autonomy in the service of reproductive ideals like wifehood and motherhood. But manhood, derived from the traits of a warrior, also turn out to include sacrificing your autonomy and well-being, but instead in the service of violence. Which makes me see women soldiers in a new light. They have to work around and against two types of subservience. Those surrounding being a woman, and those surrounding being a soldier. I asked Lieutenant Kreitenberg how she ended up in air defense artillery after graduation. Combat arms, but not infantry. It took a lot of like self-awareness for me to be like, okay, I would be representing my gender as one of the first people to do this. If I'm going to do this, I would want to do it right. The last thing I'd want to do is get into a job and not be able to do it right. I ultimately decided that I was not a fast enough runner to keep up physically in infantry or armor. Twenty-two women, many from West Point, were accepted to officer leadership training for infantry and armor in the summer of 2016, including one of Lieutenant Kreidenberg's best friends. Nineteen women went to Army Ranger School as part of a pilot program in 2015. Three women became Rangers, all graduates of West Point. Lieutenant Veronica Bryant. The Army is inherently an equal opportunity. It's the first place where women and men were completely paid equal. First place where no matter your color, you're paid equal. You get the same rations. Whether it's integration of the armed forces in the 40s, the inclusion of women in the sort of 60s to the 80s, and now the inclusion of women in combat arms, or even just more recently, transgender soldiers can now serve in the Army. You need people who are smart and brave and kind and willing to risk their lives for other people who are not often smart and kind and uh, compassionate. So I always sort of hold faith that the Army's doing okay. You're listening to High Fi Nation, a philosophy podcast that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. With the changes in the West about the role of women in war, I wanted to find out if it was the drive for gender equality that is leading to a change in the conception of a soldier, or if it was the other way around, whether the changing roles of a soldier and the changing nature of warfare that is leading to gender integration. Joshua Goldstein. There's a lot of change going on. The world is really changing fast. Women are becoming more empowered around the world, not as fast as we'd like. 
but there is change going on there. And war is changing a lot around the world. We've discovered that there are things that women can do in war that men can't do so well. Like in Iraq, the need to have women in the ranks of a group that's kicking down doors in the middle of the night doing raids. Like they'd go kick down the door and have this raid, and the Iraqi people behind the door would say, here come a bunch of American men. They're obviously going to rape and pillage us. And so the Americans said, we need to put some women into this operation. They go borrow women from other units, women who weren't even part of the unit, weren't trained with it, and they were called the lionesses. And they just put them up there in the front ranks of these raids. And then in Afghanistan, we had the female engagement team, similar idea. The women can go into a village and make contact with the women there who probably do have valuable intelligence about what their hot-headed teenage son is planning to do the next day that they're not so keen on. Technology is changing, therefore the way we fight wars is changing. I think that the changing gender roles are a part of the general decline of the resort to armed violence to settle political disputes. Maybe it's the decline of armed conflict that's opening up space for what we're seeing in uh, changes in women's rights and gay rights in the world. I think it could go either way. And that's why I say it's hard to separate it out as to what's causing what. War has been changing, and gender roles have been changing, simultaneously. Probably each drive each other at this stage in history. One final question I've struggled with, that none of the soldiers or philosophers have helped me answer, is whether I should see the integration of women into the combat arms as itself an improvement of a society. When I look at the news, and I find that there are now women in large numbers taking up arms in a civil war somewhere, or engaged in suicide bombing, or are killing and being killed on the battlefield, I don't see those societies as more progressive because of these practices. Equal opportunity to partake in the available jobs in a society. Equal responsibility for civil service. Of course, these are signs of progress. But is another war where now women are doing the killing and dying just as much as men something that shows we've moved forward in our society? Maybe. Or maybe the integration of women into combat will have a transformative role on war, as much as war can have a transformative role on men and women. This was High Nation. I'm Barry Lamb. Visit HiFiNation.org for a complete reading list and soundtrack for this episode. This episode of Hi-Fi Nation was produced, written, and edited by Barry Lamb. Production assistance from Sophie Kohler and Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Support for this episode was made possible by the Humanities Writ Large Fellowship at Duke University. And through Vassar College by the Eleanor Nims Brink Fund and the Francis Ferguson Technology Fund. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Hi-Fi Nation. Now you can listen to Hi-Fi Nation with the free Radio Public app. It's a great app for finding and following podcasts. And it also has curated podcast playlists from interesting people. They're like mixtapes, but for podcasts. I've created one myself, which you can listen to right now in Radio Public. Just go to radiopublic.com slash hi-fi nation. You can download the app for iPhone or Android 
and you can hear the shows that I chose as some of my personal favorites.